Um, Peter S. Williams is a philosopher. He lives in the United Kingdom. He's part of our, our uh, staff at NLA University College Communication Worldview Department. Um, and he has uh, been writing quite a few books now uh, related to, to this specific subject. He wrote this uh, almost 10 years ago, Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment. He gives the argument and shows the steps of the arguments in, in favor of understanding Jesus from a Christian perspective. Um, now, just last year, he produced this book, Getting at Jesus. It's, it's focusing the... Um, the um, New atheists, how they deal with the question of Jesus. And now, um, for the lecture today, he will be referring to his uh, latest book, which is a debate book um, uh, on the resurrection, which he did last year uh, with, an, uh, uh, with an American atheist. Now, uh, um, I'll invite uh, Pete in. You're very Hello. welcome, Pete. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. Um, uh, looks uh, like I might be muted on my screen here. I don't know. Yeah, now we hear you. We're happy Marvelous. to have you on. Um, and uh, you choose the title Getting at Jesus, which uh, was from your la last book. Yeah. Uh, while you will be most, uh, or you will specifically focus on the resurrection, but you will give some preliminary reflection as well from the start. So um, yeah. then uh, over to you, Pete. Um, uh, now you okay. have the presentation. Grand. Well, thanks for uh, joining us, folks. Um, the little preamble uh, that Bjorn was talking about here, about um, what I call expectation, evidence and explanation, these three different areas of thinking, that, that affect uh, what we make of the question of the resurrection of Jesus. So here I'm, I'm talking about our worldview expectations and how they shape how we approach the question of evidence and the question of how to explain that evidence. Um, so worldview expectations, how we go about establishing evidence, what kind of criteria we use for establishing what the relevant evidence is, for example. And then finding the best explanation for the evidence. Again, sort of how do we go about uh, choosing what the best uh, explanation for some set of data, uh, in this case the data relevant to the resurrection, uh, would be. And so there's an interplay of these three areas. Here's a quote from an atheist author you may know, uh, Philip Pullman, uh, author of the His Dark Materials series of books and so on. And he says that Jesus was a great storyteller. Uh, to invent the story of the Good Samaritan, you hear it once, you never forget it. You tell it to somebody else, it still has the same effect. The man was a genius of storytelling, if nothing else. Um, so we can see here a, a distinction uh, that Pullman is drawing. He, on the one hand, accepts... Uh, some of the historical record about Jesus's existence, his teachings, life and so on. 
but on the other hand, he's rejecting the historical record about Jesus where it concerns anything supernatural. Uh, so he's making this uh, division in what evidence uh, he accepts out of the evidence that we have. Um, but when you think about this, it's kind of a bit odd because the Good Samaritan parable, which Pullman admits, it appears in one gospel, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, that was written, say, 25 to 30 years after the event. On the other hand, if you look at some of the miraculous events in the story of Jesus, uh, here I've got a chart that shows miracles of Jesus that are reported in more than one gospel. Uh, so they're reported, all of these, in more than one gospel. And I've highlighted here several specific miracles that are attested by multiple early independent sources uh, testimony that includes multiple eyewitness reports, uh, for example, from Matthew uh, and John. Uh, particularly, for example, the feeding of the 5,000 is reported in all four uh, Gospels there. So we can say that some of the supernatural events in the Gospels are supported by a lot stronger historical evidence than say the ethical teaching or the uh, the storytelling parable ethical teaching accepted by an atheist like Pullman. So what's going on there? Why why is this? Well, here's what I think is going on. Here's a quote from a New Testament scholar called Helen Bond, talking about what she calls the modern academic study of the historical Jesus. She says only really began in the wake of the 18th century enlightenment with its rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways. Now the emergence of historical criticism, she says, in the 19th century allowed distinctions to be made between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history distinctions that have underpinned the so-called quest for the historical Jesus ever since. And I think this is a very interesting quote which bears some thinking about. I mean the Enlightenment was certainly not a monolithic anti-God movement in the first place. Uh, many of the leading lights of the Enlightenment were of course theists or Christians. You only have to think of uh, philosophers and scientists like Immanuel Kant, Locke, Newton, uh, Thomas Reed and so on. Now this quote about the rejection of a God who intervenes in history in supernatural ways, it does not, this rejection does not allow the distinction between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history as Bond phrases it. That rejection of God requires the distinction and it requires it regardless of the evidence, right? It, regardless of the historical evidence. So the modern academic study of the historical Jesus as conceived by uh, scholars like Bond, we can say is the search for a Jesus that's consistent with a metaphysically naturalistic atheistic worldview. So the Jesus that's happily acknowledged by many atheists and agnostics is an understanding of Jesus that we can say is shaped by faith in naturalism. 
uh, a Jesus of faith in that sense, uh, rather than an understanding of Jesus that's produced just by following the historical evidence wherever it leads. Uh, a Jesus of history, we might say. So, indeed, it seems that uh, the situation is precisely the reverse uh, of what the, uh, the the sceptical scholar is trying to portray it as. You know, the religious people have a Jesus of faith and scholars have a Jesus of history. Well, we can say uh, some scholars at least have a, uh, a Jesus of faith in naturalism and it may well turn out that the Christian view of Jesus is the view of Jesus you would arrive at by following the historical evidence wherever it led without subjecting it to this constraint that it must fit with a naturalistic worldview. Now there are three approaches to drawing a line of demarcation between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith that different scholars take and these approaches can of course be mixed. Uh, some people take a metaphysical approach and they say you know supernatural events miracles can't happen or they take a, an epistemological approach about an approach that's about what we know and how we know things and they can say miracles might happen but they can't be known to have happened or shown to have happened by evidence and finally some people take a, a purely definitional approach and they just say something like um, we can't mention miracles within history as a subject. History says nothing either positively or negatively uh, about miracles. Well, let's look at these three approaches very briefly before we come on to applying this to looking at the resurrection. So the metaphysical approach, the idea that miracles can't happen. Here's a French neo-atheist called Michel Onfray. Uh, he asserts that we should approach any purportedly holy book from a standpoint hostile to belief in revelation he says uh, and he assumes of course that the answer to his rhetorical question that I mean who would have done the revealing uh, is well nobody because there's no god to do any revealing uh, but if we take that kind of approach and say well there can't be miracles because there isn't any god there can't be a revelation because there's no god to reveal himself well, we'd better not approach the New Testament demanding evidence of its status as a revelation, say, because doing that would involve a uh, question-begging double standard. But here's another neo-atheist, uh, Lawrence Krauss, a scientist, uh, physicist, cosmologist, I think. He says, uh, a god who can create the laws of nature can presumably also circumvent them get around them uh, at will uh, in other words he's saying but of course if you know if there were a god there there could be uh, miracles you'd have to allow for that possibility secondly some people take this uh, how we know things epistemology approach saying you know, miracles can't be known to have happened so here's atheist Daniel Dennett, and he complains that in the end there is no true religion in the factual sense, for there is no good evidence supporting their truth claims. It looks like Dennett's uh, making a demand for evidence and saying uh, religious viewpoints don't uh, succeed in uh, rising to that demand for evidence. Uh, Dennett says historical arguments simply cannot be introduced into serious investigation of God since they're manifestly question-begging. 
But actually, it's Dennett here who is begging the question. He's begging the question against Revelation by invoking, and I quote, the scientific method with its assumption of no miracles. So on the one hand, he seems to be saying, you know, you haven't got evidence to show you're all right. And on the other hand, he says the scientific method just makes the assumption that there are going to be no miracles. Uh, we can't uh, introduce historical arguments uh, into this discussion. Um, this is a, a double standard. Uh, again, Christopher Hitchens, a famous neo-atheist writer and journalist, uh, he said in one of his books that he thought uh, David Hume, the Enlightenment Scottish philosopher David Hume, uh, quote, wrote the last word on the subject of miracles, uh, a negative assessment. And uh, Christopher Hitchens simply punts uh, to Hume to say we, we have to discount this possibility. Well, as uh, William Lane Craig uh, notes, the fallaciousness of Hume's reasoning about miracles has been recognised by the majority of philosophers writing on the subject today. And that's not just you know the, the majority of uh, evangelical Christian philosophers or something like that. I've also put up the front cover of a book here uh, by an agnostic uh, philosopher called John Ehrman, uh, Hume's Abject Failure, The Argument Against Miracles. So as the neo-atheist uh, scientist Jerry A. Coyne admits, Hume took it too far. Uh, no amount of evidence, it seems, could ever override his conviction that miracles uh, were really the result of fraud or ignorance or misrepresentation. Yet, perhaps there are some events where a miracle is more likely as an explanation uh, than human error or deception. Um, so here's Coyne uh, rejecting this epistemological uh, way of having to draw a line between the Christ of faith and the Christ of history. Finally, the, the definitional approach, the idea that miracles just can't be mentioned within history as a subject. Um, this goes back to folks like Albert Schweitzer, who said the exclusion of miracles from our view of history has been universally recognised as a principle of criticism, so that miracle no longer concerns the historian, either positively or negatively. You know, we just we just have no opinion on the subject. Uh, the Jesus Seminar takes the same approach, endorsing D.F. Strauss's uh, distinction uh, between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith uh, as the first pillar of scholarly wisdom, they say. Well, folks who take this approach thereby guarantee, by definition, that miraculous explanations, that miracles, are non-historical, irrespective of the evidence. And of course, they're not saying we know historically it didn't happen, but they're saying to say that a miracle happened is non-historical, not a historical thing to say. Uh, and that is true irrespective of what the historical evidence about the event might be. Well, I think that's just very boring, basically. I mean, if we have history, on the one hand, uh, defined as a subject where uh, we investigate the past, but miracles are excluded uh, by definition, well, okay, you can do history if you like, but I want to introduce a new subject to the curriculum called um, What Happened in the Past Studies. 
where it's part of the definition of that subject that uh, claims about miracles happening are to be evaluated uh, by examining the evidence. I know which subject uh, uh, I would rather uh, investigate uh, and which seems to be more open to discovering truth about reality, which uh, seems to me kind of be the, the point of history. So as the atheist Thomas Nagel uh, says, philosopher from the States, he says a, a purely semantic, a purely sort of linguistic classification of a, of a hypothesis or its denial as belonging or not to science, we could say, or to history. And that's of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or false. Uh, you know, if you want to know, did Jesus rise from the dead or not, and someone tells you, well, history isn't allowed by definition to say anything about that, uh, well, fine, but I still want to try and find out an answer to the question, and why can't I do that by looking at evidence? Uh, atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton also uh, notes that if science, or we could say if history, really is permanently committed to this kind of methodological naturalism. It follows that the aim of history is not generating true theories or true explanations or accounts of what happened. Uh, instead, the aim of history would be something like generating the best uh, account that can be formulated subject to these restrictions that the, the theories have to fit with a naturalistic worldview. He says, science, we could say history, is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism. And I certainly agree with Monton on that issue. So, to summarise, atheists often attack Christianity by wielding these kind of scientific-sounding demands for evidence, uh, often on the false assumption that Christians don't have any, uh, whilst actually rejecting miracle claims on philosophical I a priori before experience grounds and that's just a double standard uh, the so-called Jesus of history is actually a Jesus of faith in various a priori constraints upon history uh, and there's no good reason why the so-called Christ of faith should not also be the Christ of history if the evidence supports this conclusion, at which point we can turn to getting at the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and go back to these categories I introduced at the beginning about, uh, well, we need to have some criteria to establish our data. Um, historians look, uh, work and uh, discuss uh, many kind of criteria, rules of thumb of, of uh, data collection things like uh, you know early sources are better than later ones uh, eyewitness sources uh, are better than secondhand uh, multiple and particularly independent sources are, are to be valued uh, sources that are embarrassing to the people who are telling the story uh, should be valued because people don't tell tend to tell stories that put themselves in a bad light uh, unless it's because they're being honest and so on and using these positive criteria to to validate to establish specific historical claims is of course compatible with thinking that the sources containing those claims are even generally unreliable um, but the greater application these criteria find to those sources the more they indicate their general reliability uh, so by using these kind of criteria we can approach the question of the resurrection 
completely apart from and aside from the question of you know is the new testament gospels giving us a generally reliable account of the life of jesus uh, we can assume for the sake of argument that they're not but still proceed with the argument by establishing particular bits of data we need to take into account using these kind of historical criteria um, so look you know early sources we've got um, you know the book of uh, the letter of galatians about 16 years post the crucifixion um, paul talking about being uh, christians being crucified with christ or uh, jesus christ and god the father who raised him from the dead uh, in galatians 1 1 you know that's uh, early historically speaking uh, given that the crucifixion was in about 33 and here we have Galatians written about 16 years post the crucifixion or Paul in uh, the first letter to the Corinthians in AD about 54-ish uh, Paul reiterates teaching there that he says he passed on to the Corinthians when he was with them before in about AD 50 uh, and scholars think that Paul probably received this this for formula, this creedal formula that he talks about there uh, in chapter 15, uh, at the latest in Jerusalem from Peter and James about AD 37, by which time, of course, they'd already formulated it uh, as uh, teaching material to be passed on. So even like atheist scholars like Gerd Ludemann, who I'm quoting here on the slide, um, says that elements in the tradition are to be dated no later than than three years after the death of Jesus. Uh, atheist Michael Goulder says this information goes back to a couple of years after the crucifixion. Jewish scholar Pinchas Lapid says it could be considered as a statement of eyewitnesses. Uh, so uh, have a look for yourselves at uh, particularly 1 Corinthians 15 3 uh, to 9. Uh, and particularly uh, there are some interpreted comments from Paul uh, uh, around this teaching material and particularly the, the, the passage from Christ died for our sins uh, up to then he appeared to, to Cephas that is to Peter and to the twelve is kind of universally recognised as this early uh, teaching material. Uh, Paul of course uh, who passes on this material in Corinthians says uh, he appeared also to me um, in uh, 54 AD Paul writes that he is himself an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus uh, see also his account in Galatians and Luke reports the same uh, events in Acts have a look at uh, chapter 9 of Acts uh, and this is a claim certainly given the stamp of sincerity if nothing else by Paul's martyrdom for this faith uh, as the then atheist philosopher Anthony Flew observed the evidence of Paul is important and strong because he'd been an active opponent of Christianity uh, I think this has to be accepted as one of the most powerful bits of evidence there is uh, for the resurrection said Flew and you can outline uh, Jesus's death and, and resurrection, the outline of this story from multiple independent early testimonies in different forms, uh, from the early creed in 1 Corinthians, pre-Mark and Passion narrative in Mark, Peter's Pentecostal sermon in Acts, a sermon uh, also by Paul in Acts, and a lot of this uh, sermon material in Acts is recognised as, as going back to early oral traditions as well. 
or here in the next slide I've got a, a slide of tabulating seven different first century sources on the resurrection talking about the death burial empty tomb and appearances uh, of Jesus uh, first century sources for 11 uh, separate uh, resurrection appearances are tabulated on the the next uh, slide as well so we've got multiple early independent sources for at least at least two individual and three group appearances of the resurrected Jesus uh, and the evidence includes multiple eyewitness sources such as Paul uh, and in John's Gospel uh, the criteria of embarrassment I mentioned before about the fact people don't uh, tend to tell stories against themselves and we can apply this to uh, various bits of uh, relevant evidence here the crucifixion itself was highly embarrassing as uh, Bart Ehrman says in this quote I've got on the next uh, slide and this uh, bit of wall graffiti from about 200 AD uh, as well where one Roman soldier seems to have been making fun of someone else who worshipped this crucified man you know, what a stupid uh, uh, colleague he had you know it was uh, highly culturally embarrassing uh, to uh, say that your uh, so-called messiah figure had been crucified um, jerry coyne who i mentioned before uh, uh, states that uh, jesus was crucified uh, ending everyone's hope of glory uh, Gerza Vimesh, a Jewish scholar, talks about the empty tomb and the fact that the earliest witnesses to the empty tomb were uh, female witnesses and recorded as being female witnesses in the Gospels. You'll notice they're not mentioned in the creedal information uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, but in, the, in the, all the Gospels, uh, the evidence furnished by female witnesses, as Vimesh says, in that culture at that time had, had no standing in a male-dominated Jewish culture. Vermesh says if the empty tomb story had been manufactured you would have expected a uniform and you know, foolproof account attributed to patently reliable witnesses which in that culture just would have meant uh, attributing uh, the witnesses as being men. Uh, so some people believed, sincerely believed, they met Jesus alive after his death and Lawrence Krauss, uh, atheist, neo-atheist, says uh, that he will admit that if they report that which they do he's willing to admit their belief that they did and of course then you have to explain their belief that they did uh, and the resurrection appearances not just the empty tomb but the appearances the first witnesses to the resurrected jesus were women uh, across uh, the board look at matthew 28 and uh, john 20 for example so uh, the next slide i've got uh, five different historical criteria tabulated here uh, in addition to uh, being uh, early uh, historically coherent reports of inherently memorable events uh, there are five other criteria listed here that eight different eight separate resurrection appearance reports pa pass um, so you can see here you know a bunch of them pass having early uh, eyewitness testimony uh, several of them uh, pass having multiple uh, literally independent sources or uh, the criteria of embarrass embarrassment and so on as Jonathan Kendall summarizes this data uh, that numerous individuals 
including Jesus's closest disciples, had experiences subsequent to the crucifixion that led them to conclude that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead is a fact accepted by essentially all New Testament scholars, even those who are most sceptical of Christianity and of the resurrection itself. So these facts, uh, five facts I've listed uh, on the next slide, all pass multiple criteria. That Jesus died on a cross, that Jesus' body was then buried in a tomb, that that tomb was later found to be empty, that various individuals and groups of people had experiences in which they believed a resurrected Jesus interacted with them, and finally that the first generation of Jewish Christian believers believed that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, and uh, we could add we you know, were willing to be martyred for that belief. So how do we seek the best explanation of the data that we've established? That's uh, then the next kind of category. Uh, and we again have to look at for some criteria and the criteria here for looking for the best or most adequate explanation are things like, uh, well, it has to cohere, it has to make sense, hold together as an explanation, uh, having explanatory economy, the simplicity of the explanation, explanatory power, if the explanation were true, would that make the data we have likely? Um, explanatory scope is kind of how much evidence, the range of evidence that, a, that an explanation covers. Um, lack of ad hoc hypotheses, lack of um, needing us to just make up things without any evidence, uh, and the lack of disconfirming evidence. And if you apply these kind of criteria uh, to the various explanations that are proposed for that data that we've already established, I think uh, it emerges that the resurrection hypothesis is the best explanation. It's the best explanation of the relevant, relevant evidence, including, uh, particularly if we take on board the evidence, the, the prior evidence, if you like, we have that there's a theistic deity who probably exists, uh, and especially also if we take into account that the historical Jesus himself believed he was the Messiah, but wasn't apparently mad or a liar, uh, that the historical Jesus was believed to have worked various miracles, uh, and that he seems to have fulfilled several Old Testament prophecies. And these are the kind of background data about Jesus that I go into in some detail in my book, Understanding Jesus. And I'm also highlighting there the fact that, of course, if you already think that some kind of God, a theistic deity, probably exists, you're going to be much more open to the resurrection hypothesis as, a, as an explanation for this historical data we established than if you're a hardline atheist, say. So this highlights the crucial importance of worldview expectations and this really, uh, some quotes that come from the, the book that Bjorn mentioned, uh, Resurrection, Faith or Fact. Um, so I start off by, by saying that Resurrection offers uh, a uh, an explanation that, that meets these uh, criteria and I think succeeds better than the alternatives. Uh, and Carl Stetcher, who's the main atheist uh, in this book, uh, says the question is, does the claimed resurrection of Jesus provide part of a larger picture that itself makes sense? And it's at this point that the picture for him becomes murky at best, he says. 
the belief in the resurrection of Jesus is a building block, but certainly not the only building block in traditional versions of Christianity. And the other building blocks include a God who's claimed to be omniscient and omnipotent and morally perfect, but I do not see any way of reconciling these claimed attributes of God with the clear facts of the world we live in. So really he's saying, you know, if you do admit the resurrection of Jesus, it, it, that sort of takes you down a line where you're saying, you know, Jesus was resurrected by the Jewish God and Jesus was God incarnate and so on. And that leads you to believe in a particular uh, idea of, you know, there's a God, but the suffering and evil and so on in the world mean that Carl just can't take seriously the idea that there's a God. And then that rebounds on the fact that he can't take seriously the resurrection as an explanation for the for the historical data. So as I conclude um, in the book, what one makes of the resurrection depends not only on one's methodology in the gathering of evidence and in the assessment of competing explanations, kind of at a historical uh, level but also upon an open and critical dialogue with one's philosophical expectations, your expectations about whether or not there might be a God, whether or not he might choose to reveal himself in particular ways and so on. And so in the end, the question of the resurrection connects, because it's part of this bigger picture, as Carl says, to lots of other uh, questions. But certainly uh, I would say just you know, focusing on if we admit that there could be a God, we admit there could be miracles, and really we need to settle the question of, was there a miracle of a resurrection by looking at the evidence, looking at what uh, you know the best explanation for that historically might be, and at that stage then we're going to open up a whole can of other uh, questions relating to big metaphysical uh, issues like the existence of God, the problem of evil, uh, and so on. There we go. Thank you, Pete, for this presentation. That was um, really very interesting. Um, uh, so I've said welcome to people to ask some questions. There are no questions right now, but but um, let, let me just ask you, uh, what, when you were discussing in this book, um, did, did they offer alternative explanations about the, what, what happens around the Easter or the, or the grave? Um, Carl um, said that he agreed with some of the historical data but disagreed with some of it. Um, mm. So uh, he had questions about the, uh, the tomb uh, in particular. He didn't think the evidence for that was as strong as I, I think it is. But when it came down to uh, explaining uh, the the resurrection encounters or apparent resurrection encounters, which which he uh, admitted to the to the conversation, um, he would appeal to various kind of um, psychological explanations. They must have hallucinated, had had some sort of combination of grief hallucinations. Uh, and um, uh, have misremembered things uh, and so on. Um, I don't think those are, are good explanations individually or in combination or, or not better than the 
the resurrection hypothesis as an explanation for that data but it did become very clear by the by the end of the book that the the main sticking point for Carl were questions about the problem of evil questions about you know well if this is God's plan of salvation what happens to people who've never heard of Jesus you know do you get sent for hell just because you haven't heard about Jesus that seems really unfair and I couldn't couldn't believe in that kind of uh, theological system and so on uh, whereas myself and the the other theist in the book um, Christian theologian uh, called um, uh, Craig Blomberg um, tried to make responses about uh, how Christians deal with the problem of evil uh, how Christians think uh, about the accessibility of salvation uh, and so on um, but Carl didn't ever really reply to our comments on those subjects and just kept repeating um, that these were the you know the, the problems for him and he couldn't believe it um, but yeah. he didn't try to, you know, if we, we said, you know, Alvin Plantinga has a really good way of dealing with, the, you're putting forward the logical problem of evil, and here's, you know, how Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga deals with the logical problem of evil, and we'd get no no comeback on that, unfortunately. So, yeah. So even, even those uh, objections of his were basically philosophical in character and not not so much historical that's right um so uh even though he had some quibbles about the the empty tomb he you know admitted that jesus was crucified and that christians believed in the resurrection and that various people uh, thought that they had met the resurrected jesus but he would then say that there must have been a hallucination they must have heard someone else talking about a dream that they had and then years later they misremembered that as it being a real event and then came to believe it and believe that you know that was their experience because you can have false memories and we know instances where people can can develop false memories and so on and at least these are non-miraculous explanations Mm-hmm. Uh, and there seemed to be a sort of privileging of uh, non-miraculous explanations uh, and again that goes back to uh, your criteria and your background uh, assumptions um, but I would I would say if you're just sticking at a sort of historical explanatory level there's, there's so many problems with sort of saying oh you know Stephen had a dream that he talked about and years later the Apostle Peter uh, thought that that was real and that it had happened to him by a false memory when the evidence that we have says that the disciples were preaching the resurrection uh, in Jerusalem uh, within weeks of their claim of Jesus uh, being resurrected within weeks of the crucifixion so there just isn't this this massive time period for people to make that kind of mistake or develop that kind of false memory in um, there was you know, a community of people around who would have said no you know that was so and so said this or um, <laughs> you know uh, how do you account for particularly the group uh, experiences um, trying to come up with the idea of group multiple group hallucinations uh, really um, becomes in itself a sort of miraculous explanation <laughs> um, to, yeah. to, to, to claim that the multiple uh, group hallucinations of multi-sensory 
conversations with Jesus um, happened. Uh, no, you know, yeah. <laughs> So, so would, would you say that the hallucination theory is, is one of the um, uh, alternatives that are most kind of uh, prevalent among mm. atheists? Uh, I don't have any uh, statistics on the on the prevalence, but I would say it's I would say it's probably the most plausible uh, uh, naturalistic explanation to to go for. Mm -hmm. uh, but that that's not saying much. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So yeah. so um, if um, if I'm I'm to ask you that question now, uh, well, uh, what if they if this was hallucinations? How what would your response be to to that theory? Just yeah, yeah. In the short it's, span of time. Yeah, yeah. I, I go into a, a lot of detail on this, uh, particularly in my book, Getting at Jesus. There's a lot of detail on this, but um, you have to appeal to hallucinations that don't match anything we have in the psychological literature. Um, so, so many hallucinations uh, that all uh, cohere together in the right way. Uh, of so many different types of people and different situations over such a long period of time and particularly the group uh, hallucinations uh, and they're not just hallucinations of seeing something or hearing something and so on they're multi-sensory hallucinations of, of extended conversations and meetings uh, with Jesus uh, uh, again of all sorts of people in all sorts of situations over an extended period of time um, and basically the hypothesis uh, becomes one that is a sort of okay well it was a series of kind of miraculous hallucinations uh basically and at, and, at, and at that point well it becomes simpler and more economical and so on and also covers more territory to say that jesus was actually resurrected because even if you said okay you can explain the resurrection appearances apparent appearances and the people's belief uh, psychologically uh, if you also accept the data of the the burial and the empty tomb uh, well then you have to have another independent hypothesis to explain that away as well and you know that's quite tricky uh, so there's a simplicity to the resurrection hypothesis in that if it happened it would explain both of those things uh, through the one explanation um, so when you start ranking and comparing these different explanations by this sort of standard set of criteria, when you're looking for uh, a simple economical um, theory with explanatory power and explanatory scope uh, and so on, I think when you work your way through the details, uh, you find that the resurrection hypothesis is, is just the best hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but let, let's, uh, let's go with that one because now you you you've been kind of uh, explaining this um, the appearances of Jesus and why the 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 um, hallucination hypothesis really really they don't work uh, well what what would you say is is um, is the best evidence for for the empty tomb which is part of this uh, kind of this argument of this uh, yeah. some of the facts you kind of 
want to explain. Yeah, and, and again, I, I think the, the power of the, the data comes from saying that we've got data that passes multiple criteria that we apply. So it's not just the fact that we've got um, early historical evidence, testimony, that this happened, or that we've got uh, multiple testimony, or that we've got testimony that's embarrassing, and as much as they say that the, the first witnesses to this were, were, were women, um, and that's culturally kind of uh, embarrassing to them. Uh, it's the fact that we've got data that passes multiple, that does all of that. Um, so when you've got bits of data that, that pass these mul multiple, multiple of these criteria, uh, it's the fact of passing the multiple criteria that, that really um, gives you an assurance that this is a bit of data uh, that we should take seriously, even apart from, you know, if we don't take seriously the general historical reliability of the Gospels. And of course, that's a whole other question. As I said, the more you find these criteria do apply to things in the Gospels, the greater your confidence becomes that actually it's probably telling the, the truth in the things where you can't in, sort of uh, independently test it. Um, people who you, you know, are telling the truth where you can assess their truthfulness independently, it increases your confidence that they're a truthful person, right? And you, you start trusting them on things even where you can't independently uh, test them. And I think it's like that with the Gospels as, as well. There's, you know, good argument to be mounted that they're generally reliable accounts and they talk about the crucifixion and the empty tomb and so on and so those are probably reliable. But also, quite apart from that conversation, you can say, even setting all that aside, uh, you know, Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, the empty tomb, the apparent appearances... Uh, the fact that the, the Christians believed and preached and died for this message very early on all pass multiple criteria. We've got to take that seriously as data and, and you can't really avoid the question of what's the best explanation for that data. Yes, thank you, Pete. Um, uh, and uh, and we, we're sorry that some point of the this uh, lecture, the sound was not uh, perfect. Sometimes you fell up. That's not your okay. fault, Pete. Uh, I've been um, MP3 recording myself here, so if my audio recording works, I'll pass that along to you, and I'll put it out on my podcast as well, which people can get through my uh, website. Yeah. Uh, yeah, on, so yeah. uh, I'll do and, that as well. And, uh, mm. So I, I I just want to to share his uh, um, um, website with you. Uh, just a moment. So if you uh, if you go into peteraswilliams.com, um, you will find his website with a lot of material. Uh, you will find a reference to his publications and books, um, a lot of writing, and presently he's writing a book, a response book, Outgrown God Questions, a response to Richard Dawkins' book for for youth. So so um, um, thank you. Pete, for uh, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us, and we invite everyone to come in and check our our courses at Communication World Use at the NLA University College. Uh, the courses are presently uh, given in in uh, Norwegian, but uh, we have uh, offered some of them in in English. So we hope for the future 
this flexibility of online teaching will, will help us share this material with the more people. Right. So thank you very much everyone and uh, see you uh, at one point. Um, God bless.